Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. We're going to have to sit patiently through the sermon. Uh, adults too. Uh, my name is Brandon Buller. I am the church planning resident here at New Life, which means that I'm uh, heading off to Fort Wayne in about a year uh, to plant a new PCA church. Um, so you can be praying for us to that end. Uh, one of the big things is that I've so far been working on a lot of my ordination exams. I've passed uh, several of them, and that's been really good. I, I take another one this week on sacraments, so you could pray for me this week if you want to. I'll probably take it on Thursday. Um, but if all goes well this fall, I'll be ordained as the pastor of church planting um, for the church in Fort Wayne. So really exciting stuff happening. Um, and I am here to preach God's Word today. So uh, Without further ado, we're going to turn our attention to God's Word. Um, you can turn in your Bible, if you want to, to Psalm 34. It's probably right about in the middle of your Bibles that are under the uh, seats in front of you. But I'm going to have the text on the screen pretty much the whole time. So if you like the, the tactile nature of a Bible, that's great. Go ahead and grab that. If not, you can just follow along on the screen. So let's read this text. I'll give you a moment if you want to turn there. Psalm 34. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps and around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be accepted in your sight, 
O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, at the risk of uh, being really boring, I wanted to let you all know that you are in a worship service. And I have to tell you, I went to seminary just so I could deliver such revelatory insights as this. Um, You are in a worship service. But the name of that service, the title of that service is actually quite interesting. Why do we call it a worship service? They do go by other names. Sometimes people just call them a a church service generically. Or if you want to sound really Presbyterian and Reformed, you'll say a Lord's Day service. It sounds weighty. Um, We definitely do not call it Mass like the Roman Catholics call it. We don't call it a prayer gathering, even though we do pray. We don't call it a sermon service, even though there is a sermon. Our Christian services are named by the act that everybody here takes part in and that God has actually called us to do. In fact, most churches in our traditions, we actually start with a call to worship just like we did this Sunday. And that means that God calls us here in order to worship Him. It was his call. It's kind of like uh, God rings the dinner bell and we all come, right? And I find this fascinating because here we all are. We're here to worship God, gathered to do this joint act, something that God invited us to do, and we all followed him here, and we are joining ourselves to that task. But what's remarkable about that? It's not that we all obeyed God. I believe that the Spirit makes those types of things happen, but the The crazy thing is that we all are here with different baggage, with different barriers, with different circumstances, all these things that could have prevented us from coming. Everybody is here with a different story for their arrival. We're all unified together once we get here, but we didn't come here unified. Isn't that interesting? There's some who might have come here while just yesterday had this big flare-up of anger or financial distress or somebody really struggling hard against a besetting sin of some kind or somebody who has family trouble or strife. A handful of you really wanted to come to worship today, but a handful of you really did not want to be here on a Sunday. And that's amazing that the Spirit can actually do that and bring us all here and cause us all to worship in spite of all those different things. We really have a different way of approaching this service and and all have a different story behind how we arrived here and it's going to land on us even in in particular ways. And perhaps you came here and a pep talk service would have been a lot more appropriate for your life. Or a counseling service because of the trouble that you find yourself in. But we don't have counseling services. We have worship services. Worship is at the core of what Christians do. It's at the core of what God has called us to be, a worshiping people. And today's psalm, Psalm 34, is a master class in worship. Okay, it's a wonderful praise psalm, and just to, to read it as we just did, it's, it's quite a big encouragement, but what we're going to see as we dive into it is that this worship psalm, it, it too has a background. The author has a story that led him to writing it. And it actually makes it much more interesting in its expression of praise to God. So we're going to walk through this psalm together in just a moment. We're going to talk about Psalm 34 in three headings. The when, the why, and the how of worship. So when do we worship? Well, um, 1030, right? That's the biblical answer, I'm pretty sure. 
Um, not true. Uh, there's nothing that we can really find in the Bible to talk about what time of day we worship. So I'm not talking about what time we worship. Um, I'm talking about the occasions for when we worship, the circumstances that we arrive for worship in. So we can worship when we're happy. We can worship when we're sad. We can worship when times are good, and we can worship when times are bad. And I recognize that's really easy to say, isn't it? Um, but let's look to the author of the psalm. Let's look to, psalm, to, to David. So, look with me at this. It's called the superscription. It's the text that's actually above the psalm, right? You can see it in your Bibles. Um, and it is part of the original text. This isn't like some other places in your Bible that will have headings. You know what I'm talking about? A lot of times in the New Testament, it'll give a little heading. Those are not inspired. This is actually part of the biblical text, so we can learn something from it. And it says... Of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Okay, uh, other uh, translations say a psalm of David regarding the time he pretended to be insane in front of Abimelech who sent him away. What? <laughs> David pretended to be insane, he changed his behavior. What are we talking about? Let's look at that. For a moment, we're going to look to 1 Samuel to understand the context the when, the occasion for the worship. Okay, so first of all, uh, let's, let's just put our minds in David's situation for a moment, okay? Remember that David had been anointed the king of Israel, right? Um, because Psalm, Saul, the first king of Israel, had acted wickedly, um, and so God uh, withheld the kingdom from Saul and his offspring and gave it to David instead. So David has been anointed at this point. But David was such a good warrior that everybody around was starting to talk about, hey, David, he's really our, our go-get-him guy, isn't he? And Saul became kind of jealous of that, so he tried to kill David. Remember? That all happened in 1 Samuel chapter 19. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, David has to flee because Saul doubles down on this. He decides, I'm going to murder this guy, um, and I'm going to like get anybody who wants to differ from me out of the way. This context happens the very next chapter in 1 Samuel 21, when David is on the run from Saul. So let's hold on to this notion. David, who has already been anointed the king in Israel by Samuel, he's on the run from the guy who refuses to admit that the kingdom doesn't belong to him anymore, who refuses to give up the throne. Oh, and it's worth noting that David is married to Saul's daughter. He's on the run, so he might never see his wife again. And oh yeah, David's best friend is Saul's son. So he might not see his best friend again, and he might not see his wife again, and he's on the run from the king of the nation, who's his father-in-law. So David escapes, right? He goes off to this distant land. Um, he visits the priest at Nob, you might remember, um, and he eats the showbread that was there um, and keeps going after that and visits the king of Gath. That's who's referenced here, the king of Gath. But the people there realize that, oh, this is the guy that they keep talking about is this mighty warrior. Is he here to like get some intel or kill us or, or something like that? They become a little bit worried. They're scared that David is there to just get a military advantage. So David's next move is a little surprising, uh, but it's the best that he could do given the fact that he now is on the run from not one but two kings. There are two kings that think that he should be killed. So it says in 1 Samuel 21:13 So he changed his behavior before them 
and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. And it worked. (laughs) This little trick worked. The king decided that David was actually crazy and he said, I think I've got enough crazy people in my court. Let's send him on his way. What does David do right after that? He writes Psalm 34. That's the very next thing he does. He worships and praises the living God. Right after this. The first words that he writes down are verses 1 through 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Now, I don't think David exaggerated when he said he would praise the Lord at all times, right? Because he most certainly is doing it in the moment that he's writing this psalm, in the midst of a most confusing and even frustrating providence. This is not a psalm of triumphant victory or of courage or of a man speaking from all of his wealth and security. Instead, David praises and he blesses God at all times, even after he had to act insane in order to escape. The first thing he does when he's able to act in his right mind again is is he worshiped God. He worshiped God. So it's fitting for us, too, to worship God, to offer our worship in the midst of the craziest and the hardest of life's circumstances. The most fitting occasion to worship God, the when of worship, is in every circumstance and all the time. But how can that be? Should you just take my word for it? Probably not. But there is no other, if you want to use an analogy, there's no other person or place or thing in this whole universe that you would ever consider giving your praise to when that thing in some way could remove those circumstances from you or make your life better. Why would we consider giving God our praise when life is difficult? Why is it fitting to worship God when things are bad? You know, just a couple weeks ago, we're only two weeks out from uh, Independence Day, right? Um, And one of the things that we have in our Constitution um, is the right to criticize our government, the First Amendment. And let's just say Americans use that privilege, don't they? <laughs> uh, we criticize our government. Um, we're, we're pretty eager sometimes with our criticisms. Um, and when things are bad, we do not hold back from our critiques, right? In fact, it's, it's a good thing to critique when things are bad. In other countries, citizens are, are quite literally compelled by, by force or, or by censorship to only speak positively about their rulers, We don't have that here in the United States. We're allowed to criticize our government. But this text is not a result of compelled speech. God isn't forcing David to say any of that. And we can say that confidently because there are other places where, yeah, the the Bible authors do rail against God's providence sometimes. Even David himself does at, at certain times, like in Psalm 13, say, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? He's not saying that right here. So David's allowed to criticize God, but he's not doing it. So we know this isn't compelled speech. David genuinely means this. He means what he says. 
So the why, why should we worship God in the midst of hard providence? Because our God is a God of deliverance. Let's look at the next section. Verse 4 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Let's break this down and just look at verse 4 to begin with. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. This literally happened for David, right? It's a literal retelling of what just happened. David trusted in God, and God answered him. And he did this by freeing David from what he was most afraid of. He was afraid that he would die by the hand of Saul, and then afraid that he would die by the hand of the king of Gath. God literally delivered David from death at the hands of two different kings, right? That's why he's saying that he was delivered. And then in verse 5, things get amplified even a little bit further. Those who look to him are radiant. Now, y'all look nice, but I wouldn't use the word radiant to describe any of you today, right? Like, that's an interesting word to use. Um, David definitely does not mean that you will be perpetually happy by the word radiant, okay? Because right now, he's writing this psalm alone in a cave on the run and maybe won't see his family again, right? So it doesn't mean that he's just perpetually happy. So instead, it's, it's a joy of some kind. Radiance must be a joy or a glory of a higher order. We shine like the stars in heaven because God holds on to us tightly all the way until our final deliverance, all the way unto glory. And if he's predestined you to this glory, you can't help but radiate with this special way of being in the world, right? It's a joy that sometimes doesn't have a smile on. But David does go on to say that their faces will never be ashamed in the second half of verse 5. This to me is quite interesting because he literally, he literally just had spit running down his beard, right? Your face won't be ashamed. David, you look like a fool. Well, in the eyes of the world, maybe he looks like a fool. To his enemies, he might even look like a fool, but in the eyes of God, who he aims to please, he's anything but ashamed. When we look to the Lord, we actually don't run and hide in shame. We can stand as ones approved by God, knowing that he loves us and he chooses to save us. It was his choice to save us because he desires to be with us. And he wants to cherish us as his own possession. Verses 6 and 7 kind of go together as a unit here, and together they, they illustrate what it looks like for us to put our faith in God for our deliverance. Verse 6 sets a pattern. It says, this poor man cried. Notice that humble posture that David takes. The poor man cried. He isn't calling to God and saying, you owe me, God, right? I'm the, God, I'm the guy that you picked to be your chosen servant, so, so do what I ask you to do here. Instead, he calls from a place of poverty with nothing to offer God in return, right? This is the humility of faith. And then verse 7 says, God delivers all who fear him. See that at the bottom of verse 7? 
Fearing God means that trusting in Him, trusting Him will lead to, I'm sorry, let me start that sentence again. Fearing God means trusting in Him, and it means recognizing the awesome power of God. It means believing that God has the strength, He has the ability, He has the capacity, and He has the means to deliver you out of your circumstances. It means believe that God is, believing that God is capable of, but not obliged to help you. He's capable, but he's not obliged to help you. You simply need to ask, right? You need to trust in him to do it. That's two sides of one coin. Fearing him means that you better be aware of what happens to you when you don't trust in him. But it also means that you're putting yourself in your hands voluntarily because he alone has the power to do anything about your circumstances and bring change in your life. When you put together this humility toward God and this trust and the power that you can hope in, that's faith. That's the faith of a true believer. Humility and trust. God delivers all of those with this humble type of reverence. But you might raise an objection to this idea, right? Uh, why does God allow the trouble to happen in the first place? This is called the problem of evil. Why is evil here in the first place? Why doesn't God just deliver us before the trouble happens to us? Why does God allow bad stuff to happen, in other words? Well, James Boyce, who's a, a PCA pastor who's now in glory, says this, commenting on David's situation and worship. He says, deliverance is one thing. Exemption from trouble is another. God is a God of deliverance. He's a, not a God who exempts us from all trouble. But why? We have such a hard time understanding why God could allow suffering in our world. Why would David have to go through all this suffering at the hands of wicked men like Saul when God has already chosen him? Our human nature, it just recoils against suffering, and, and rightly so, right? It's natural, it's good to recoil against suffering because we know that God created the world with original righteousness. It was very good. Our original state didn't have to suffer at all. So suffering, we could say it's an alien intruder into our world when we allowed entry uh, when our first father Adam sinned in the garden. In other words, it's appropriate, again, to recoil at suffering and question why it exists at all. But let's, let's zoom out a little bit. The person who questions why David had to suffer before he was delivered is kind of the same. It's an analog of the question of why Adam was created with the capability of sinning in the first place. Do you see why I'm saying that? Do you see how they're linked? Because when we wonder why David has to suffer, we're actually questioning why suffering exists at all. Well, we know why suffering exists, don't we? It's because Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. Why was he allowed to sin if he was created very good? That's a pretty tough pill to swallow, right? And, and Christians and non-Christians alike actually ask that question all the time. And there isn't just this one-off proof text verse that gives us an answer to that question. We don't know exactly why it is. What was going on in the mind of God when it comes to his eternal plan of creation and redemption? What we do know is that his ways are above our ways, as it says in 
Isaiah 55. And we know that because of the way that the plan was executed, the way that God planned out his way of salvation, that Jesus was definitely more than enough to overcome sin and suffering, right? So isn't it a wonderful and astonishing thing that he would display his love to us, not by removing suffering from us or from David, not by removing problems from the church in every age, but by joining with us in our suffering. Emmanuel, God with us, the Messiah, had every right to question why he had to go to the cross, why he had to suffer. Couldn't it have been that God just saved everybody and he didn't need to send his son to die? No. Why would he have to suffer in the first place? He didn't argue with God. Instead, he, he went willingly to the cross. Right? This is from the New Testament, Philippians 2. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what I'm saying is that the, the reason why suffering exists and to question why it exists is actually viewing the problem upside down. Instead, we should ask ourselves, God, who am I that you would send your only son to become obedient to the point of death? That he would suffer just so that I can be saved, so that I can be delivered. Could it be that the answer to the question of, of why did Adam sin, could it be that it was so that Jesus could be lifted high? Could it be that suffering exists in this world just so that the love of God can be displayed and manifested to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ by him coming near to us? Could it be that David himself suffered but still worshipped in Psalm 34 just so that we can read about it and see a precursor to Jesus who would suffer and worship God. Hebrews 2 says this about Jesus. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, us, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus will sing God's praise. So Jesus suffered, but yet he still sang God's praises. He worshiped God as God. David, in this respect, is actually foreshadowing Jesus, both through the suffering, though Jesus suffered more greatly, and through the worship, though Jesus worshiped more purely. Both worshiped God in every occasion, right? All this so that you too can know about and withstand suffering and worship in the midst of it. Because in God, in Jesus in particular, you have deliverance and you have salvation. But David is not just a forerunner of Jesus in this respect. He actually inquires of his readers to, to make a decision, right? In fact, if you don't want to just take 
uh, his word for it, David dares the reader to test to see if faith is for you. It's a great spiritual experiment. It says in verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And we're going we're gonna to have the Lord's Supper later today. This text doesn't actually refer to the Lord's Supper. David doesn't have the power to institute sacraments. Only Jesus does that. Um, but it is interesting that there's this way of, of an analogy that, that physical characteristics like tasting and seeing can somehow enrich the soul. So we'll do that later today. Put a little pin in that. But the point is that David is asking the reader or the, the hearer to step out onto Jesus, to test for yourself. David isn't just looking back and saying, look how God delivered me. He knows that God will continue to provide. And not even just for him, but for anybody who's willing to try it out. The call to taste and see is an invitation to put your faith in God. It's a challenge to, to take on this story of suffering and then worship. And put it into practice in your own life. And basically what that is, it's a sharing of a testimony, right? We just heard of this story and then this invitation. That's the sharing of a testimony. And I'm sure that most of us here had somebody in our lives at some point. Maybe it was a, it was a parent, maybe it was a friend. Um, maybe it was even just somebody who uh, brought us a Bible for the first time. But it might have included a, a personal story of deliverance, right? Um, but then it probably turned into some sort of ask. Some sort of question of, are you ready to, to step onto Jesus and, and try and become a Christian? Are you ready to pray with me? Testimonies have this really huge impact, and here's one that we can all read together in the Scriptures, recorded for all time. And, it, and if you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, here's the good news. You too can taste and see that the Lord is good, right now, in fact. I just want to emphasize David's words. I, I want to invite you personally to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's indeed the only way to recognize that the second half is true. Blessed are you when you take refuge in him as well. Today is the day to give it a try, right? And if, and if you want to know how to do that, then uh, I'll be here after the service. I'm going to be handing out stickers out in the lobby, but Pastor Bob will be here for a little bit too, and there'll be others to pray with you up here um, at the front of the sanctuary, and we'd be happy to talk to you about what it means to know God personally. So uh, let's talk. Um, after David shares this testimony, he incites all Christians, his saints, in verse 9, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Fear the Lord. So even if you are inside of the community of faith already, even if you've already tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you need to hear this as well, right? Fear the Lord and put your trust in Him. We already talked about that word fear, and it's about knowing that God has power and yet trusting Him anyways. So um, you need to, to fear the Lord and put your, your trust in Him for your deliverance, both in all of your circumstances and, importantly, for your very salvation, Right? He says in the second half of verse 9 that those who fear him will have no lack. Now you have a second objection, right? It might have a sour taste in your mouth because we certainly feel like we have a lack, don't we? Whether it's finances or in health or some other area. But God gives us what we need. Sometimes it's only just what we need. But you're all here. So you had enough. In fact, 
sometimes actually God uses the church community to provide, right? That's what we have deacons for, to provide for needs when they arise so that we can have no lack. In fact, God uses, we Christians know that God uses us all the time to fulfill his promises, right? God in both the Old and New Testaments has all these different commandments and, and ways uh, that we should keep watch and make sure that nobody lacks anything that they need, right? So we can read this verse and know that at least occasionally, if not very often, we are the way that God provides for those in need. But in a spiritual sense, which I think is actually what David is talking about, we also lack nothing when we have faith in God. Why? Because we know that we have eternal life. Eternal life. One that doesn't go away, right? One that you can't become hungry in in eternity. You have everything you need for everlasting life if you have faith in the Redeemer. But it's in verse 11 that David changes directions. Um, David begins a new section, and so this will change sections for us as well. This is the how of worship. How do we worship? Um, David begins a new section, and some call the opening ten verses that we just got done with the hymn. It is praising God. And then this next section is the sermon. It is instruction on how to praise God. So now this is the how of Christian worship. Keep in mind, David is not talking about a worship service, right? This is more of a how to live as a God-fearing worshiper with your whole life. How do we know that? Well, David, think, again, go back with me to think of David's context. He was living about 3,000 years ago now, um, and they didn't have church like we think of it. They didn't have uh, worship songs that they sang as part of their services. In fact, he was actually writing one of the ones that we kind of sing now, um, a song. The worship lives of the covenant people were, were very different. They did have a Lord's Day. They did have a Sabbath that they were to set aside and consecrate to God, but it didn't, it didn't include church quite in the same way. There wasn't like this national songbook that they all sang together. That wasn't part of the Old Testament religious system. For David, worship was actually this, this whole life-encompassing affair. It included um, adherence to sacrificial laws. It included the Ten Commandments. Um, it included uh, loving your neighbor as yourself, right? But it, importantly, it included loving God inwardly in your heart as well. Verse 11 says, He will teach you to fear the Lord. So he's going to show us how to worship God with our whole life. So um, here's what he wants you to know about being a righteous person, a God-fearing per person, a worshiping person. And it says it in these verses. It says, this person avoids speaking evil and telling lies, right, in 13. He or she will turn from evil or repent and do good. And then in verse 14, you will seek peace and pursue it. And depending on your attitude towards doing those things, the way David sees it, God sees you in one of two ways. Either you worship God with your whole life, and you're considered a righteous person, or else you don't worship God with your whole life, and therefore you're called the wicked. In verses 15 through 17, uh, he's going to go kind of, uh, I'm sorry, verses 15 through 22 David basically goes back and forth between a description of the way God will treat the righteous person 
and the way he'll treat a wicked person. Okay, so that's kind of the structure that David is using. In other words, he goes back and forth pronouncing outcomes for the worshiper and outcomes for the non-worshiper. And instead of going back and forth, I'm just going to arrange these lists by categories. So I'm going to start with the non-worshiper of God. What is the outcome for the wicked? This is what it says. The Lord will turn his face against those who do evil, in verse 16. He cuts off their memory from the earth. Affliction destroys the wicked. Those who hate the righteous, including David, I guess, will be punished. Now, it doesn't take a seminary degree to know that those are not great outcomes, right? Um, This is a pretty stark idea. He doesn't talk about this lukewarm category of people who do some good things but don't really acknowledge God as their Lord. It's either you're the righteous or you're the wicked. You're either subject to calamity and punishment or you're going to be faced with these other outcomes that we'll talk about in a moment. You either worship God or you're the wicked. This is to say that from God's perspective, there are people who serve him, right, that choose to serve him, and then there's everybody else. There are those destined for redemption, and there are those destined for punishment. Those are the categories. And it begs the question, which category do you want to belong to, right? Do you want to belong to the category of the wicked that I just described? Or do you want to freely join the category of the righteous? Freely join the category of the righteous. If you do, or if you have, this is what's true of you. God's eyes will watch over you. His ears are open to their cries for help. He hears his people when they cry to him. He delivers them from their trouble. The Lord remains near to the brokenhearted. He saves those whose spirits are crushed. In verse 19, the righteous person has affliction, but the Lord will rescue every time. He protects their bones. He redeems those who serve him. None, no one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Now, can we agree that that is really good news? To know that the God of the universe will treat you in that way. Those are your outcomes. For the righteous person, the point of David's worship is is not about his own performance, you'll take note, but about God's grace. What do I mean? Well, David never once says something like, one slip of the righteous person will leave you condemned. Right? He doesn't say that. Instead, he says this in verse 22. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David does not say the righteous person might be wishy-washy or have a little bit of doubt when you face hard circumstances or when bad things happen to you. No, he says, the Lord delivers them out of them all. It doesn't say God favors the one who has their life put together and worships perfectly in all circumstances inside and out. No, it says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So which one of you is the crushed in spirit? Have you come to church worrying that that God himself is going to find you out and condemn you because of that slip up you had? Have you been the one who didn't have your life put together? Who had a lack 
in some area, God does not turn his face from you. He welcomes you. He invites you into worship. Because it doesn't say that God hears the people once they no longer have any trouble. It says in verse 17, the Lord hears you when you need help. And it assumes that people will have trouble in this life and that he can, and that he can deliver them. Because our God is a God of deliverance. What does this mean for the how? How do we worship God? Well, the how is not to execute your life perfectly, right? It means turning to God in faith, in humility. Knowing that he can and that he desires to rescue you. That's what he wants to do. You worship God by thanking him, by exalting him for who he is, a deliverer who's full of grace and salvation for those who put their trust in him. His whole plan, his whole plan from the beginning, as we've discussed, was to come near to the brokenhearted by sending Jesus, and he did. He came near to the brokenhearted. He came near to you by sending his son, um, his son among us. And he rescues you by suffering alongside you, so much that he suffered all the way unto death, suffering the punishment that we deserve for our sins. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed by being crushed. That is a God worth worshiping at all times. So in a minute, you too can worship God by singing your praises to him because you too have been delivered by his son Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are our deliverer. We have no hope outside of you. It is on account of your son that we know that we have full assurance of, of salvation, that we have eternal life and inheritance that's kept for us pure and unfading in heaven. And God, one day we will reign as your heirs, as your children. That is deliverance. We, we now live in the midst of suffering and in the midst of um, violence, hatred, anger, but yet we still worship you, God, knowing that you are the only way to find deliverance. There is no other path. And God, we do proclaim that you are good, that you do provide for us. Sometimes it's just barely providing for us, but every good gift comes from you, God. All of our families, all of our bread, and our community, it all comes from you, God. We are knit together and we are granted full access to you. God, allow us to worship you now with our whole hearts, um, putting trust in you for every, every successive time that you will continue to deliver us as well, um, all the way unto glory. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our deliverer. Amen.